0: I do His blood has washed away the stain. So sing to Jesus. Sing to Jesus. Sing to Jesus. And live. Like a newborn baby, don't be afraid to crawl. And remember when Sometimes we fall So fall on Jesus Fall on Jesus Fall on Jesus And live Sometimes the way is lonely And steep and filled with pain So if your sky is dark and poise the rain. Then cry to Jesus. Cry to Jesus. joy and sight then dance for Jesus And go in peace
1: Is it good to have the Academy students present? Emily and Kelsey, thank you for that song. Sometimes we wonder why we can't have more of them. Grande Academy is sort of the core of the mission of this church and how it started. You should know that about once a month they're out visiting area churches eight or nine times. in the st- Grateful when they can be here with us. You should also know, by the way, I just struck me, that when you give an offering like you did today, and we send that money to Academy, it means that a student who might pay, you, know, 530 dollars in tuition only has to pay 400 dollars a month in tuition. It's about 30 percent you cut off of their tuition bill by paying your church budget. Isn't that a gift? That's a commitment of this church, and it's a beautiful thing to watch. It came out of nowhere. And it died. A hummingbird flew into our living room window unexpectedly, and it was over. Now, if it had been up to me, I'd gone on with everything that was planned. There were, however, these two small children who would not put up with that. And so they began to dig a grave. In the backyard, you know this ritual? They dig a grave, and they put the dead animal in and, and the stones are all put in a sacred way on this spot and a little sign is erected R I. P. I don't think they even know what it means. I wasn't present but the testimony is that one of the children began a eulogy to the bird. Goodbye little bird. We never knew you. We hope you were a good bird. We'll see you in heaven. It isn't that much different than an animal we brought home from a school fair. These seniors would have been first grade. It was 1995. I didn't want a pet in the house. But all the parents told me don't worry, it's a coin toss. The kids can't make the coins into the containers. And then came our kid, who got her daddy to do it. We went home with a goldfish but all the parents said again don't worry they die quick <laughs> they last maybe a week and then they're out don't worry about it it'll die the bowl is small the children overfeed them they forget to clean the tank they're they're history so i went to Daryl's pet shop and i spent 26 dollars on a habitat for a 1 dollar fish <laughs> that will live 7 days and goldie died three years later. <laughs> and again, in the backyard, a hole. And a f- dead fish goes in. And this time, because we know this fish, it was a different sign. It said, here lies Goldie. We loved him much. And another rest in peace. And another eulogy. These are our first tastes with death as little ones in the world. And, and then we grow And Grandma gets sick and Grandfather dies. Our best friend attempts suicide in college. A spouse leaves us behind. Perhaps a child is diagnosed. These are the tracks death makes in our world. If you're here with the Academy just for this week or visiting, you've caught the final part of our conversation we call Dying Well. Dying Well. And we have decided as a church that we will talk about the uncomfortable, even though, if we're honest, this makes us uncomfortable. Dying well. Yet, as this week has unfolded and you heard it announced, we lost two more people. This was January. This church loses at least one person a month. And we lost Jerry Crispin's father, John, while Jerry's out of the country and Marianne's here by herself to find. Her father-in-law has passed away. We lost Phil Albertson at the beginning of the week. When I walked into Marty's home Monday morning and Phil had passed away, she was clasping his hand, and I just barely entered the house. And she said to me, very eagerly, "Chris, you'll be proud of me. I'm doing good at dying well." As she held his hand and stroked it for the last few hours, "I'm doing good." reciting memories, crying when the tears come, laughing when the laughter comes, being together, that's about as good as we can do dying well. Last week when Chaplain Sproul was here, I was glad that he prodded us just a little to think more carefully and to do better at accompanying one another into death. He referenced Ecclesiastes 3, and I would like to read it with you this morning. Just the first eight verses, Ecclesiastes 3. There is a Bible in your pew rack if you'd like to read. I'll read from the New Living Translation this morning. Familiar, familiar words. For everything there is a season, a time for every activity under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die a time to plant, and a time to harvest, a time to kill, and a time to heal, a time to tear down, and a time to build up, a time to cry, and a time to laugh, a time to grieve, and a time to dance, a time to scatter stones, and a time to gather stones, a time to embrace, and a time to turn away, a time to search And a time to quit searching, a time to keep, and a time to throw away pack rats, a time to tear, and a time to mend, a time to be quiet, a time to speak, a time to love, and a time to hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. For those of you studying along in the Sabbath school lesson this quarter, Ecclesiastes is the topic, and chapter 3 was the conversation last week. We have here from the pen of an author, a troubled author, reflections probably gathered over a lifetime, not a short period of time. Life has been lived. Disappointments have happened. Experiences have happened. Crises have happened. Losses have happened. And maybe that's why this author sometimes appears con- conflicted not not, nonetheless melancholy but conflicted there's a dissonance in his writing it within chapters within the entire book he says life is meaningless that is absurd the word it is absurd to live as absurd it's the same conclusion for an animal's life as a human's life absurdity it's all absurdity he says a million and a one ways in the book of ecclesiastes it is absurd and so, and so we're left with these reflections. What does he mean in that context? These 28 times, a time to laugh, a time to grieve. What does he mean? Surely not everything is mentioned there. It's not an exhaustive list, a time to get engaged like Pastor Isaac. Didn't mention that one. Or when is it possibly a time to beat a child? It's not that kind of a list. So what, what does the author want us to think? If there is a time that's God's timeline, a divine timeline that's not ours. So understand that. Is that what he wants us to think? There is um, a time that everything will happen. You know, life just happens, so deal with it. Is that what he means? Does he mean to say Does he mean to say, there is a, a timing? And you'll figure it out. A time for what? 28 times over and over again. It's not an exhaustive list. How should we understand it? I favor the conclusion I read, and you can read at Spectrum Magazine online. Fritz Guy says, I think we have a teacher here in Scripture who, while he is struggling, wants to believe. While he is wrestling with what's happened in his wife, while, life, while he is puzzled by that, he wants to keep believing. And he knows there are questions that cannot be answered. And he also knows there are questions we cannot avoid. And we get the privilege of listening in on this conversation when he says, well, I suppose there is a time for everything. So it comes out feeling melancholy. He shares sentiments with Job and Jonah and Jeremiah in the scripture, who cursed the day they were born. Rather be dead, they said, than alive. Life was so that absurd. That's what this author believes. Yet even in the middle of this absurdity, there's just this little glimmer, at least one, in chapter 3, verse 11. Yet God has made everything beautiful in its own time. It's a faith statement. He has planted eternity in the human heart, and even so, people cannot see the whole scope of God's work from beginning to end. And, And there, maybe, is the dissonance that we feel, this conflictedness on the inside, because we see that God has planted inside of humans a desire for eternity. That is a God idea forever and ever together. And here comes death which separates us, and we protest, rightly so, because God planted eternity in our hearts, so we protest. Yet the text says we don't know the scope of what God is managing, the breadth, the depth of his work, the commitment that he has. We can't begin to understand, so we live in this tension, and things are fuzzy, I I believe. That's what's happening for the author of Ecclesiastes. There are, he does not have all the answers. Things will be tr- fuzzy. There are troubles he cannot explain. And perhaps he's most troubled that in his lifetime he will not get to see God complete this work. He will not get to see God heal the world salvation. He'll not get to see a world that's at peace, a world that is calm, a world that is whole. So life is absurd, he says. When you can't understand what's happening around you, and you look around and you too see life is absurd. There are not answers for all of my questions. It's fuzzy. There is always a choice. When it doesn't make sense, whether you're a teenager at the academy being bullied whether you're in a fractured relationship in your home, whether you've lost all of your physical belongings in the storm in Florida, doesn't matter what it is we're grappling with, there is always a choice. The author of Ecclesiastes chooses faith. He makes a faith statement. I can't see the scope of what God's working on, but in, in time... Everything will be beautiful. He says it again at the end of the book in just a little bit different way. He musters the faith statement. It sounds more like this when he begins the end of chapter 12. Remember your creator. He's not sure what else to say, but turn your face towards your creator and remember your creator as you consider your absurd circumstances. It is a faith that moves along and not a simple faith not an unreflected faith not a selfish faith it's a faith as some say that's developed in the the school of hard knocks it's been tested and tried and it's moving along somewhere and that kind of a faith a shift takes place from me being in the center of this faith what can god do for me how will god fulfill all of my requests i am so deserving to what is God doing in this world? What is the scope of this plan? Who all is involved? And when will I see what God is up to? It's a, it's a shift in our perspective that I don't believe comes easy for humans, especially when we face death and dying. It is not natural. We heard the comments this morning about the play Shadowlands down in Redlands that some of our members are participating in the story of C.S. Lewis and his wife Joy. So late in life he meets her and they get only four years together of marriage before she's taken with cancer. The play centers around that story. Lewis says in writings various places his faith fell like a house of cards when his wife was taken from him. He says it is easy For you to say you believe in a rope, to say the rope is strong, as long as you're using it to court a box. But suppose you have to hang on to that rope over a precipice. Suppose you have to dangle out over a cliff and that rope is it. Then you discover. That's when you discover if you really trusted the rope or not. Not a simple faith, not an unreflective faith. It's a mature, developing-in-the-school-of-hard-knocks kind of faith. When we are we're in the midst of death and dying and grief and loss and sadness and mourning, is it possible that we can take these steps from a simple faith to a maturing faith, the kind of faith that I believe the author of Ecclesiastes has, Remember your Creator. I can't understand at all God. the scope of God's work but God will bring something about. Is it How do you move there? I believe that one of the obstacles in our way that we have to move around to get into this maturing faith perspective is this idea of living with resonance, living with this resistance, with these unresolved things. Did you hear the singing that, that Mark and Amanda did with Lisa or tried to do with Lisa? How bad that sounded? Come on, that sounded bad, right? That's dissonance didn't sound right. We want to resolve it. We want a C major chord, you know? We want to fix it. And because we want to do that, we tend to jump over the top of grief and pain and sadness. So we move to resolve things rather quickly. It's more comfortable for us. So we say things, and we keep the conversation going, and, and we, we move people through their pain. It's something we do when we're uncomfortable with dissonance. It's something Martin Luther did. Many, many people he advised and counseled through their grief process, and he even admits to himself, perhaps I was hasty in some of these situations. He says to people, well, don't worry, your wife died a good death, or your husband died in the, per- in the performance of his God-given duty. He outsmarted the devil. He didn't have to live through all the evil in the end of time. These are words from Martin Luther to comfort people. And then he catches himself when he's comforting a minister colleague whose baby has died and Martin Luther has the something to say to the minister colleague, don't worry, he died because God wanted to take your child to be with him. But he heard what that sounded like and he wrote and reflected later, this is all vain, it's a story that falls on deaf ears when your grief is so new. I yield to your sorrow. Yielding to sorrow. People who are dying usually know they are dying. And when those of us attending them change the topic, it doesn't change the mind of the dying. They still know they're dying. When we change the topic, when we jump over top of this dissonance, it doesn't help the dying. It's for us, the healthy and the living, so we'll be less sad, so we'll be less angry, so we'll be less uncomfortable. When Chaplain Sproul was here last week, I thought he was gracious. He, if you were here, you heard him say, I've learned over the years to keep this shut. He pointed to his mouth. Did you see that? That was a polite way of saying what I want to say to you now. When we think we know what to say to someone who is grieving and mourning a loss, maybe we should think duct tape. Duct tape for the mouth. Just close it. Just don't say it. Whatever we think might sound helpful and good, and it oftentimes is to help us jump over the dissonance and the pain and the confusion we don't like, and we have to remember everybody is coming to this situation from a different place and a different perspective. What might make sense coming out of my mouth is offensive to you when you're having your pain and suffering. There's your visual if you folks need a visual. Duct tape. Tape it. How many times that would have helped me over the years? Attending grieving people, just be quiet. You want to know the crazy things people say to those who are grieving. There are books written about this, and and Betty McAllister and her family told me last year, we should write a book about this. People say, don't cry, dear, it's not good for you. Don't cry so much. What do they want you to do? People say, you, you be strong, be strong. You'll get through this. People say, he's better dead than he was alive. You know what they meant to say, right? But that's how it comes out, better dead than alive. God knows what he's doing. Time will heal this. You'll feel better next week. This was nothing compared to the way my friend died, let me tell you. He's in a better place now. Take this as a challenge, dear. I don't make these up. Or one I heard a few weeks ago, a parent who lost their teenager last spring or year last fall on the back of a boat. The kids were just cruising along, teak boarding, teaking on the back of a, a ski boat on a Sabbath afternoon, enjoying the water and the sunshine on an August day. And you, some of us have heard the story. The kids were up at the academy in Washington State and and they breathed the fumes and died. And someone who should have been thinking duct tape sent a letter, if you hadn't have been on a boat in the river on a Sabbath afternoon. We jump over the top of things. And Adventist theology is an interesting one here. The Adventist theology quickly jumping over to get to the future. It's intriguing to me what might be embedded in our thinking. We should think duct tape. And when we, when we have duct tape on and we sit with a sad and grieving one... Oh, thank you, Steve. Don't try this at home, people. When we do that, our ears are open... And people will lead us. The grieving one will often lead you. And we've created now hopefully a space that is calm and is open and available. And the person who is dealing with this can say what they need to say. And there will be a time the duct tape can begin to be pulled back off the mouth. It's one thing we do when we're moving from this simple faith towards mature faith. I think we we try to avoid the dissonance and maybe we could walk through it rather than try and jump over top of it. And rather than try and resolve death, which we will never resolve on this earth, all the medical science in the world, and we know how the story goes, rather than try and resolve this experience of death, perhaps we should take that same energy and put it into life. That which it is we could affect and we could change For one of the most common fears we hear people talk about when they think of death and disease and moving to the end are their relationships in this life. Those things which remain fractured and broken and and sick, those things which we do have some control over, and those things which we so infrequently talk about and work on. It is very much like what's happening this weekend. 140 million people will be viewing tomorrow. There will be two teams. One team is suppo- predicted to win by one touchdown. It'll be translated into 33 languages. It'll go into over 200 countries. 47 minutes of advertising. That's 10 more minutes than last year, which is why I tune in. Every 30. 30- Every 30-second spot costs $2.6 million to make, and we all know what we're talking about, and I didn't even have to say it. And this is what the advertisers do, because that word is trademarked. So that is why your newspapers and your television ads say, get your furniture in time for the big game. Can't say the word. Have your TV plugged in by kickoff. Kickoff of what? We all know what we're talking about. Get all your munchies and have your party, party menu out and ready for halftime. Half. We all know we're talking about the Super Bowl. Can't say it. It's a trademarked word. It is like this in life. We know. We know where the fractures are. We know where the wounds are. And so infrequently are we willing to talk about it which is what we could do with our energy while we're living. We could address those things. I watched this in a parking lot a few weeks ago. A father with an 8-year-old boy or so, you know, dragging him along, walking quickly, and the kid's chatting, and the father's pretending to listen. And the child says, but Daddy, it's true. I know it's true. No, it's not true. But, uh-huh, Daddy, it is true. You weren't there, and I know Grandma loves Mark more. It's not true. And he grabs them and they go, you know, "Uh Uh-huh, you didn't see, we opened presents on Christmas Eve, and he got more money in his present than I got. Grandma loves him more. It is a refrain. Grandma loves him more. Somebody didn't love me at all. I wasn't wanted. This was the most miserable family. And from the grave, great-grandma has so much power unto the third and fourth generations. It is the thing we don't talk about, but one of those things with which death has so much power, guilt from beyond. I was abandoned. I was abused. I was misunderstood. I was beaten. I was the last one I should have said, I'm sorry. Any of those things we could say. That is what we could do with our energy while we're alive. Work on our fractured relationships so that as we move towards death, we've done our part. We've made this gesture. We've worked out towards one another. And when we move into death, that will be not only one last thing. That's why we know of deathbed confessions and deathbed reconciliation. We won't have that Instead, we'll have people able to attend us so we can all die well. Next week when you come, we'll have 50 copies of the book we talked about in December, The Anatomy of Peace. Many of you have already bought it. The pastoral staff has been talking. We thought, what if we just make the book available to all of us? And we start thinking now about these fractures internally in our families, in our networks, in our countries. And taking the steps. This is what we could do with our energy while we're alive. In the end, the most incredible part of the story, it isn't about dying at all. Death never has the last word, don't we know? Death never has the last word. Even the most significant death in the Christian story The death of Jesus is not the last word. And I would venture to say and to ask you to think about the death of Jesus is not the most important feature of the Christian story. Otherwise, God could have killed Jesus any number of ways. What was all that life about? What was all the living for? In the end, death holds nothing. So that my spouse died and left me is not the most important thing in life. So that my parents, my mom died or my dad died and and I'm here alone, not the most important feature of my life. So that my child left and I'm a parent with the hole gaping in my heart is not the most important feature of your life. It is not... What defines us? Because what defines us is this unique experience to be human and to love and to engage in relationship. It's not that my grandfather died. It's that my grandfather shaped me. It's not that my parents are gone. It's that they infused and embedded and impressed me with their values and their ideas and, and their passions and their commitments, and now I know how to live. It is the life that's the most important Life will have the last word. It's what we must remember in our maturing process of our faith. I have these dimples on the sides of my cheeks, and I believe I'm the only one in my family. When my grandfather would come to visit, I heard the story over and over as he put me on his lap. Do you know how you got those dimples? I don't, Grandpa. Let me tell you, you were in the nursery, Portland Sanitarium in Oregon. I came in to see you and I took one look at you and I picked up my finger and I put it in your cheek. <laughs> and then I took the other finger. One's not enough. Got it, stuck it in this cheek. Well, look at there. Now you have my mark. You're mine. So he's gone. So she's gone. So one day my parents are gone. But guess what mark I bear? The most important thing is not that they leave us. The most important thing is that we loved one another. That is the love of God. That is our imprint on this life. One day the goodness of God, the full scope of this work God has been about will be very clear and death won't be a part of the conversation.
2: There will come a day when we see Jesus and know the troubles of this world are through. When in the east we see our Savior coming, as He promised, making all things new. First we'll hear the angel's trumpet blowing, clearer, brighter. As the cloud draws near And then we'll hear sweet Jesus say I love you And I am so glad that all of you are here At God's family reunion Jesus Christ, our brothers at the throne Family reunion. God has come to take His children home. All of us on earth know separation when someone who you love so much is gone. Leaving you with teary eyes and memories Longing for that promised golden dawn When God will finally raise His sleeping children They will meet their loved ones in the air And tears of joy will flood the streets of heaven Brother, I can't wait to see you there At God's family reunion Jesus Christ, our brothers at the throne Family Reunion God has come to take His children home No more sorrow, no more pain Ever with the Savior to remain No more heartache, no more grief Only joy beyond belief At God's family reunion Jesus Christ, our brothers at the throne Come to take his children home.
1: Now, may this God, whose scope of work is so massively huge and impressively good, wrap you this day. And forever until that day. Amen.